Hello again, and welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing, episode 569. This is the weekly podcast about slow flowers and the people who grow and design with them. It's all about making a conscious choice, and I invite you to join the conversation and the creative community as we discuss the vital topics of saving our domestic flower farms and supporting a floral industry that relies on a safe, seasonal, and local supply of flowers and foliage. This show is brought to you by slowflowers.com, the free online directory to more than 850 florists, shops, and studios who design with local, seasonal, and sustainable flowers, and to the farms that grow those blooms. It's the conscious choice for buying and sending flowers. And thank you to our lead sponsor, Farm Grow Flowers. Farm Grow Flowers delivers iconic burlap wrap bouquets and lush, abundant arrangements to customers across the U.S., supporting U.S. flower farms by purchasing more than $10 million of U.S.-grown, fresh and seasonal flowers and foliage annually. Discover more at farmgrowflowers.com. And thank you to the Association of Specialty Cut Flower Growers. Formed in 1988, ASCFG was created to educate, unite, and support commercial cut flower growers. Its mission is to help growers produce high-quality floral material and to foster and promote the local availability of that product. Learn more at ASCFG.org. My guest today is Krista Rosso of O'Flora Flower Farm, based in Oregon's southern Willamette Valley. Her tagline for O'Flora Farm is, Small Farm, Big Blooms, Oregon Grown. Krista and I met in person earlier this summer at the Slow Flowers Summit in New York, but we're just a few hours away from each other by car. And when I traveled to Eugene, Oregon two weeks ago, I invited myself over for a tour and to record today's interview. I know you'll enjoy it. You'll hear Krista's fascinating story about her path to flowers which involves a 15-year career as both a photography editor at National Geographic in Washington, D.C., and a freelance travel photographer whose work took her to all seven continents on the planet. Now, thanks in large part to being temporarily sidelined by the coronavirus pandemic and the pause on traveling to teach, guide tours, and take amazing photography, Krista is decidedly present, staying close to home on her Oregon cut flower farm. Let's jump right in and you'll hear the full, beautiful story. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Slow Flowers podcast with Deborah Prinzing. And I'm on location at O'Flora Flower Farm with Krista Rosso. Hi, Krista. Hi, Deborah. Thanks Thanks for coming down. Oh, it's so (laughs) great. This worked out. Thanks for saying yes. Uh, we're in Harrisburg, Oregon. So mm-hmm. tell everybody where you're at, and um, then we'll talk a little bit about your business. Okay. So I'm in Harrisburg, Oregon, which most of you probably don't know where that is, but you may have heard of Eugene. Um, so I'm about 25 minutes from Eugene, and Eugene is about an hour and a half south of Portland in the Willamette Valley of Oregon. I think you say on your business uh, branding, like lower Willamette Valley? The southern Willamette Valley. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Willamette Valley ends like around Cottage Grove, so about not too far from here. But people know of this region as like a a winemaking region as Mm -hmm. well. So agriculture is based in your whole environs. Yeah, there's a lot of winemaking further around Eugene and then up closer to Portland around McMinnville. Mm -hmm. But 
where I am, which is Lynn County, we have a lot of grass seed farming. So I'm surrounded by a lot of barren golden fields that just were all cut for grass seed right now. You, you commented on that, and um, it, one could think, oh, grass, how, how Americana or whatever, but you said it's, it's not good for a diversified flower grower to be surrounded by this mono culture. I found it particularly challenging just because um, I've noticed, this is my third year growing, and I've noticed that when all of the fields, so I'm surrounded by thousands and thousands of acres of grass seed. No, no, no joke. That's no, no joke at wow, all. Wow. Like thousands. And all of the fields get cut at the same time. And I've noticed that once the fields get cut, all of those pests, all of the insects that were in the crop, they have nowhere to go. They have nothing to eat. So guess where they come? Wow. So they come to my field. This year hasn't been as bad as previous. And then the next thing that happens is usually the fields get plowed. So way back in the day, they used to burn the fields, um, but now they'll plow them and they plow them and plow them and plow them until it's a very, very fine powder. Which and, is what, like permeating your Oh yeah, your you'll, you'll, see, um, you'll see haze for weeks and weeks wow. when, when they plow it and afterwards. And so I have, then I have dust devils that will come sweep over my field. And oftentimes one year I had really bad um, moles and field mice infestation because we also had a really weak winter that year. And so every... All of them came into my field, and suddenly my sunflowers were falling oh. over left and right, and my gumfrina was just dead. So it's it's been a challenge. I've never heard that <laughs> term before. Dust, dust devil, devil no. you haven't? No, is it like oh. a, obviously something from I don't know Kansas or <laughs> I don't know where the term comes from, but yeah, it's like little tornadoes of dust, and so they just whip on through here and plow into my field and dust everything. Well, you're showing just by revealing all of this, uh, <laughs> well, two things. One is you, you work with what you have, right? Yeah. You grow on the land that you are, have available to you. So mm -hmm. we'll talk about that. And the other is just like this determination to not let it take you down. Like you're resilient and intrepid. I try to be. Yeah. Wow. Like, I admit there's moments where, you know, when all those things are happening, it's really rough. Well, with that backdrop of, of placing you here in the Willamette Valley um, and talking about the conditions, um, can tell us how big your farm is and also like how would you describe Oflora Farm? Well, I don't know how big I am acreage wise. I think I'm maybe a quarter of an acre or so. I mean, you have um, you have thirty foot beds that you have by about twenty five of them. I have about at least total 16 60 foot beds. Oh, 60 foot if, beds. If you, okay. yeah, if we double that okay. up. Yeah. And but then, I do grow a lot of 30 foot space. And rows. then you have the high tunnel mm -hmm. and you've got, you keep adding. It sounds like you have access to adding. I've been adding more land to grow on as time allows. Mm -hmm. Okay. But you're a one woman show. I'm a one woman show mostly. So kind of a microflower <laughs> farm. And, yeah. and Oflora, uh, it's a, is it Oflora Farm or Oflora far, Flower Farm? Um, Oflora Flower Farm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How, or Oflora Farms is the handle I use on Instagram. Oh, okay. That's where yeah. people can find you. Yeah. How uh, did the farm come to be? And to, <laughs> I know people will find this very relevant yeah. because of the, it's so timely uh, of how the universe told you to start this flower farm. 
Yeah. So in 2020, um, so before becoming a flower farmer, I was a full-time freelance travel photographer and photo editor. And so you can imagine in March of 2020, when the pandemics happened, I was about to be leaving on a trip and that canceled and was the first of many, many cancellations that I had. You're the kind of person who had like the passport filled with stamps from around the world. Yeah. I have the fat passport that is filled with stamps from many, many places. And um, I, by chance, had been taking the florette online um, flower farming workshop that I had been gifted a few years prior and just never had time to take it. Oh, wow. So you had the login and you just started watching. Yeah, well, I've been watching it over the winter a little bit. um, But then when I started losing my work and saw the pandemic on the horizon, I thought, you know what, it's just, it's time to let's try it. Let's activate this option. Yeah. So I, in a kind of frenzy, I started ordering seeds and, you know, trays and I made my little grid with my plan and, and just like went for it and started with a CSA that summer and... Um, yeah, now it's my third year, which is kind of crazy. It's almost like you have this triple threat skill set, though, because you have the flower farming, but you are a trained journalist, mm-hmm. uh, both photography and writing. Mm-hmm. And now you're a floral designer and flower grower. So you can you can put it all together and you are doing that yeah. on your on your website and on your mm-hmm. uh, Instagram feed. Your, your photos are just they're next level. So it's really fun to see how you've brought these two, these two passions together. Mm -hmm. Um, During my first season, I think part of the reason I was able to get as many customers as I did and sell as many flowers really without much of a plan was because I was able to photograph my products in a very attractive way. And I think by photographing to an elevated style, you can command a higher price because many of us have the talent to grow beautiful flowers, put them together really well. But then when it comes to translating that, just showing it to your customer, especially if your customer isn't in person looking at what you're right. selling, um, it makes a difference. So That is such a good, good point. It's like the difference between the quick iPhone photo in the farmer's market stall and kind of treating this like an Elvacore photo shoot or something. Right. Getting in a luxury environment. Um, <laughs> So the 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 online store that you mentioned, you mm-hmm. would have um, images that would represent your CSA subscriptions and then also like single uh, arrangements? Yeah, so I was listing specialty arrangements and I would take pictures of them and I even would, um, I did a setup with the same kind of flowers, three different sizes and photographed them using my hands for scale sure. so that people could understand the size and um amount quantity that it would be in a bouquet and then I was selling the CSA and also selling a la carte bouquets that people could get right. just once a week if right. they weren't subscribers. Where did you set up a little studio here or where were you shooting? Um I shoot all over. There's different places but I, I look for places where the light is even and out of direct sunlight mm-hmm. and then it's really about finding a nice background. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I'll use something solid like an old, old piece of mat board or even um um, like a painter's canvas mm-hmm. can be nice mm-hmm. or I'll use, I have, um, these stacks of drawers that 
hold all kinds of miscellaneous tools in the shop. And so I kind of like that as a background. A little bit more like a vintage background yeah, or something. Yeah, but I usually photograph them just being really cognizant of what the background is so there's nothing distracting. Because you want it to be about the flowers. It's about the flowers. Yeah. And then I always try to do a variety of images. So there's there's more of the, the full bouquet shot. There's the detail shot. And then I'll do horizontal and verticals because... I started forcing myself to photograph all of my subscriptions before I took them out because I knew that I needed that material for Instagram and for selling to future clients. And it's been invaluable to have those on hand. And I just can't stress that enough yes. is to build in time for every farmer and florist to photograph your work. I mean, the, so dis important. the discipline of that is going to pay off also, I would say, after a full year then you had a document, a, a documentation of what was blooming when and yep. what your CSA contained every week of the, mm -hmm. of the season. Yep. Wow. And then I also knew if I was repeating color patterns or flowers, I didn't want my customers to get too tired of any one thing in particular. It's such a sensitivity that you have to think even about shooting vertical and horizontal because I do think, you know, now when I'm asking people for photography... Uh, for a blog post or for the, you know, the website mm -hmm. to go with the podcast or for Bloom Imprint. I sometimes think, the, why are they all vertical? Like, I, you know, then I have to put two verticals together to make a horizontal. Right. And, the base is tall. And the right. Are tall. right. Like on yeah. a WordPress site or something. Mm -hmm. And um, it seems like such a simple tip. But mm -hmm. I hope people hear this and, like, yeah. take a vertical and a horizontal. Yeah. Well, that came from my photo editing days. Um so I worked at National Geographic Traveler Magazine for seven years as a photo editor. And wow. so if I had... Um, so you were receiving stuff from other yes, photographers. Yes, yes. I okay. was going through other people's work to curate their work to go into the magazine or into our iPod, into our iPad version at the time and the website. So it was a lot of different formats. And it was also yes. thinking about variety to be able to tell a story. And even when I put things on my Instagram, I do try to think about changing the pace of the images. So maybe it's a close-up image of a prepared bouquet on one, and maybe on the next, it's a field shot so that people aren't getting tired of seeing the same thing. That's really interesting because then like at a quick glance on the grid, it's not this sort of monochromatic, mm -hmm. not that's not the right word, but like just uniform, everything is mm -hmm. the same composition. You're changing yeah. the composition. I'm trying to. And yeah. I love that. So the field shot versus the detail maybe versus something that, that is more activity oriented, like, mm -hmm. like your hands are in it or something. Yeah. Or a portrait of myself. I try to get in front of the camera too, because I, I like to know who I'm buying things from, yeah. you know, to see people's faces. So I try to put myself in there I think that's every good. once in a while yeah. just so people know who I am. I think it's connect. good. That my, yeah. my pet, pet peeve, you know, I was telling you, we were talking about, we really want to get the, the flower photography workshop uh, that Krista will do sometime yeah. soon. You heard it here first. So <laughs> sign up for her newsletter so you can get on the list. Um, when I teach the floral creative writing course, um, one of the, my biggest pet peeves are the people who only have their first name on their oh, yeah. website, about page. It's like, no, okay, or, or just the we, the sort of royal we. Yeah. So personalize it. Yeah, because people connect with individuals yeah. and individual stories and Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, I asked you about your design, and I asked you, uh, other than, you know, photography could come out of a journalism 
uh, training or a fine art training. And you said you have studied fine art yeah. uh, in, in a college setting. So when you, when you did that at University of Oregon, yep. what was your motivation? What, what, what did you think that you wanted to be and how did you want that fine art degree to create a career for yourself? Well, I originally wanted to do graphic design and um, the, the classes were full. Oh. And I remember my advisor saying, well, why don't you start taking some photography classes? And once I started taking those, I took everything that I could. And then I also did um, bookbinding and letterpress oh, and a lot wow. of ceramics. But primarily I was focused in photography. And at that time it was not digital at all. It, it was, was darkroom like... Oh, yeah. Oh it, was, my it was black and white darkroom. It was wow. color darkroom. Wow. So printing from color, which was a whole different thing. And a lot of um, alternative process and medium format, large format. So it was very, very hands-on, which is something that coming back to farming, I'm realizing how much that I've missed because being this on the is computer... Yeah. Being like, on the computer so much is, you know, nobody... Does anybody <laughs> really like that? I don't know. <laughs> well, it's so interesting. Like, you you have the skill set to do film photography, but, but do you even do that anymore? Or is it just, like, the equipment has changed so much? I don't do film. I think if maybe I got into a deep fine art project, I would potentially go back mm-hmm. to it. But it's just the ease of... You're, you usually end up scanning it anyways. That was... I've heard When that. I transitioned mm-hmm. into digital, that was the way to go because you were making getting mediocre scans that then you worked on on the computer anyway. So it lost that tangible hands-on quality. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. So, so I'm all digital now. So from, from a BFA, is it, do you get a BFA from? I a, have a BA oh. in Spanish and in fine art. Oh my God. Like a very random. So perfect. Like a really random and, collection and the, there. So did the travel come in because of the Spanish? Kind of. Cause I studied abroad. Um, I studied abroad in London one summer and then I studied abroad in Granada, Spain. Oh, wow. And those were my first real being abroad moments. And I just... With camera in hand. I had cameras then. I wasn't as into photography at that point. Mm -hmm. I then... That was um, my sophomore year. Mm -hmm. And then when I... I went to University of Portland for a couple years. And then I ended at UofO. And that's when I really got into photography. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I just started traveling I guess after college I ended up going to Germany for a year and I worked as a waitress in an American military resort okay that's yeah. a great life skill set yeah. that's got to come in handy somehow yeah it was like I had mediocre jobs out of college in Portland and I was like well if I'm gonna be a waitress here why not go do that in Germany and then I can travel on the weekends oh that's wonderful so, wow I did that what led to this long career with National Geographic um, so after Germany, I came back to the States and I ended up getting a job assisting at the Santa Fe photo workshops in Santa Fe, oh, New I've Mexico. Oh, those are pretty prestigious, right? They are. Yes. And it's just, it's like a lovely, lovely place for anyone who's interested in photography to go. And I, I basically worked for them for a year and was just immersed in photography like day in, day out. And, it was, and all these like world-class photographers teach yeah, that, right? Yeah. And including National Geographic photographers. Mm. So that's mm. where I first sort of met any Nat Geo people and then ended up um, assisting with some National Geographic workshops in Spain and Scotland. And then I started doing some, helping on some seminars that they did throughout the States. And then I met the director of photography for National Geographic Traveler Magazine and ended up getting a job there. I was debating going back to grad school and had taken a couple courses at UVO in photojournalism and 
got the job at Nat Geo. And so I moved the to... The job D- became your graduate program. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I moved to D.C. and I was there for seven years and I worked at Nat Geo the whole time. Wow. And then I got sick of being at a desk and wanted to be out there doing the travel more on my own. So I left in late 2013 and then since... From then until the pandemic, I'd been traveling, photographing assignments. I've been editing books, editing magazine stories, and then teaching. So I travel primarily for National Geographic expeditions. And so anyone can go on a trip with Nat Geo um, on it. You're not necessarily teaching professional photography. No. I mean, no, not on those. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's sometimes somebody who's very advanced, but it's just a lot of hobbyists, advanced amateurs, people um, who love to travel, love people to- love to travel, people who just show up with their iPhone and then they realize, you know, I teach them a few things and they get really excited about telling stories with their cameras. So, um, so yeah, I've gotten to go to all seven continents. And oh my gosh. What I don't are- even know what my country count is, but I've traveled a lot and photographed so much. You said something really interesting when we were walking over here to, to do the recording when Chris has said, that you lived a vagabond life mm-hmm. for so long, and it sounds like you really loved it. And it was very fulfilling, and now you're rooted—no pun intended. Well, pun intended. <laughs> pun intended. <laughs> here at Oflora Flower Farm, in um, uh, you know, in family land, and so you have—you um, haven't traveled much at all because you were grounded basically for mm-hmm. two years. Yeah, bless your heart. You made yeah. the best of it. Yeah, I mean, and I'm really, it's been such an adventure, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to do something completely new. It's like, so being at the Slow Flower Summit in New York just recently with you, I was just like, wow, this is amazing. It's been three years, and I I mean, I know so much more. I didn't know anything about the floral industry or about farming or floristry, and it's just amazing what you can learn, and it's been curious and you're yeah, the work. Yeah, and I'm really proud of that and it's been great for me. I think it's helped me get through the pandemic for sure. It's also I, I mean at least you had this physical novelty. It's hard work. Yeah, as I said the <laughs> physical act of farming is kind of stimulates endorphins and like keeps you maybe your mental health better as well, right? Just from yeah. even when you're not sure what tomorrow is going to bring. Right. And then there's all of course the stresses of farming where you know, I'm enjoying being out in the field, but then suddenly I'm dealing with pests and right, right, and crop failures and all all of the fun things that come with farming. But I mean, it's there's something to be said about like trying something totally new. Well, you are you you you. I think you probably learned though that you had some of the essential skills to do flower farming well because you strike me as like you're a total problem solver technology doesn't scare you and visually you know what's aesthetically pleasing so it all kind of came from that photography training and journalism training you had yeah I mean the aesthetics do definitely and then I don't I don't know if I have a green thumb obviously I do but somehow that part seems to be working you seem like you're maybe have a family gardening background as well my grandmother's especially Mm. my dad's mom really loved to garden and I think she's really the root of why I love flowers because she always would have like little vases with like just these really artfully simple arranged flowers from her garden and 
I always found my happy place coming home in the summers and picking flowers and just arranging and, mm. you know, mm-hmm. finding peace there. Mm-hmm. And so that's, I think, really the root of where my love of flowers came from. That's, I mean, I think that everybody has some some thread of a universal um, mm-hmm. narrative of where another person influenced you mm-hmm. in a, you know, in some way. Could be, could be your childhood, could be your adulthood, but it, it, it's, someone opened a door yeah, or a window. Um, you started talking about your online shop and how you have that set up. Can you talk about your markets and uh, well, let's talk about the crops you're focusing on and then also who you're selling to and because you are you know doing this without much help at all. So you yeah. had to kind of be wear every hat. Yeah. So I've I've been doing. Um, CSA. So, um, I just call it a subscription. So I've been doing a subscription every season except for this current summer season. Mm -hmm. So I started with summer of 2020, did fall, spring, summer, fall. Actually, I didn't do fall last year. Um, but I did spring. The bigger seasons. Yeah. And then I plan to do fall this year. And then last year I started in the summer to sell to florists. So right now I'm trying to balance um, still having time to work on my photography career. So my intention is to work on keeping sacred space around March and April, which is our big spring season in Oregon and into Mother's Day, of course, into May. And though that's going to be your bumper crop. That's, that's my bumper crop. I'm going to focus heavily on ranunculus, specialty tulips, narcissus, um, poppies, and some other biennials or hardy mm-hmm. annuals mm-hmm. Um, in that zone in that in that growing period and just really focus on that for subscriptions and florists because I find that that is a little more um controllable like knowing that that time period is generally when I need to be here so and I can kind of plant the things in late fall early winter and then tend to them but I don't have to be as present as you do when you're when it's summertime right I was going to say that like the crops you mentioned, not they're they're all under like low tunnels or high tunnels. Mm-hmm. So there is a little bit of a control that a field crop just simply is. You don't have that luxury. Yeah, and I don't have to worry so much about watering. Mm-hmm. You know, they maybe need a little bit of water, but if it was something in the summer, I would have to just be physically here and yeah. present. So yeah. I can add in some of my other work in the off months, and then I, I haven't been growing as much. Um, during this summer, but I've been trying to grow more of less crops and focus more on high value. So as mm-hmm. you just saw, I have loads of delphinium coming out my ears, but they're gorgeous. I love it because it's high value. The florists go crazy for it. The colors are great. Um, it just feels like light blue is always in need for weddings mm-hmm. and it can dry. So, yes. so if, you, if you don't sell it now, you'll I sell dry it. Yeah. And back to your specialty tulips and your ranunculus mm-hmm. um, and the poppies. These are, there's never enough in the marketplace for locally grown uh, spring flowers. And so it, I think it's a great strategy for you. Yeah, I feel like I can grow as many as I can handle and they will sell. I actually intended to dry a lot more ranunculus and really didn't hardly dry any because oh. I was able to move them. 
Um, do people come here to per- pick up from you or do you deliver? Um, so the way I distribute my flowers is I offer delivery. Um, it's an additional $10 per week for delivery. And I also will give the option of a pickup place in Eugene. So in South Eugene, I partner with a um, houseplant shop. Oh. And so they allow me to use their space as their pickup spot. And the idea is that hopefully they would end up getting some business from my customers. and Both for your subscriptions and your wholesale? Or is it um, mainly no, a subscription? Just a subscription. Okay. And then for wholesale, I do deliveries. Yeah. Yeah, on, a, on certain days of the week. So right now I'm only doing one day a week for, for florists. And it's sort of when I have things and, and they all are aware of it. Yeah, and it's interesting that you started in, you know, the deep in the midst of COVID and kind of have ridden that wave because it seems like this equally uh, similar narrative has happened for florists. If they hadn't been buying local, they wanted to buy local. So mm-hmm. you probably had people coming out of the woodwork who maybe weren't familiar with how to do business with a flower farmer and they had to learn along with you. And yeah. Yeah. There's been a lot of um, small designers, small people who are just popping up and, um, I was catering more to them last year and this year I've been being a little bit more selective because I'm not growing as much. Yeah. And I realize I can't, I can't offer to everybody without having to say a lot of no's. So I've been focusing on some primary florists that have been just really big supporters of local. And then if anyone contacts me individually, you know, I'm happy to sell to them, but I've been very inconsistent. Um, with offering it to everybody. I'm just going to make a comment about um, developing these florist relationships that are, um, you know, not like you prioritize, but the people kind of emerge that get you, they get your flowers, they value your flowers for the price. You were saying there's somebody who is taking almost every ranunculus that you, like she was willing to pay the price that you felt was fair. Yeah. That's the perfect customer. You don't yeah. have to beg people to buy your flowers. No, I feel like I haven't had to beg people. Um, and it's, I think being in the Eugene Springfield area, there's a lot of individual small flower farms. Mm-hmm. And I think we're all able to fill the niche. And even if we're growing the exact same crop, they're probably not going to be blooming at exactly the That's same time. That's or a, we have yeah. slightly different colors. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I don't feel like we're in competition with each other. I still think the florists have the capability to buy from us all and help sustain us all, which is really nice. Yeah, that's wonderful. And we all even buy from each other when we need it. And it's really nice. Our farmers are lovely people. That's the the biggest thing that I've learned by coming into this industry. I feel like the community is another kind of surprise for people who are from conventional forestry uh-huh. who maybe haven't experienced that. Yeah. And uh, we felt that at the, at the Soul yeah. Summit. It was great. Um, well, I'm, I'm seriously interested in, in hearing about your idea of teaching floral photography mm-hmm. for, it would be geared toward flower farmers and floral designers? Um, that's the intention. It would be for both um, farmers and designers. Um, there would be, you know, bits of both. Yes. Um, and... The idea would be to teach you to be a better photographer, which, you know, I could I could teach you that in any medium. But if I'm showing you exactly scenarios that you're going to find useful in your everyday life, that's just going to be much more applicable. Yeah. And when you have, as a farmer, I know how limited, as a florist, time is limited. So yeah. I want to create this course that 
is going to be really accessible, accessible, won't take a ton of time and you're just going to like, learn a ton from it. Yeah. And I think it would, I mean, I just, it's going to elevate people's photography and just bells and light bulbs will go off. That's so so that, And it's just, sometimes it's very simple things. Um, I think some of it can be technical technical and I'm going to try to do two different levels one will be more iPhone photography or phone photography and the next one there will be another level that's more mirrorless or DSLR for people who want to learn a little more advanced but you wouldn't have to plow through all of that information if you're only interested in one right. or the other or you're going to break it up by topics so that um the modules sort of solve one pain point and then yeah yeah and I want to do a lot one. of I am such a vis visual person that I learned by, I had to see it myself. So I want to do a lot of hands-on in the field scenarios of look at this setup, look at the light. Okay, now look, we, we just shifted here and it's better. Wow. So like learning how to really, yeah. I mean, the biggest thing with photography is looking at the light. It's not about what camera you have. I know. Isn't it's that not, so funny when people yeah. ask you what camera you have? I know. Do you want to just smack them? <laughs> well, I'm also like, would you ask a chef what kind of knives they use? It doesn't to make, make the food better. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, and you know, people, and some people like to get hung up on the, the gear and the technical. Sure. It's but, a little bit of a security blanket, right? Yeah. And you know, there's certain people that hide behind that, but it's really, you can make a good photo with any camera, yeah. as long as you know its limitations. And you have to put in the work, too. Like, yeah. just, just the practice and um, the discipline of you saying that you photograph every subscription that leaves this property. Yep. Just even giving yourself that assignment, you probably made some changes in how you were photographing flowers. Mm -hmm. Just because you'd see, oh, this, this is what people respond to on Instagram. Yeah, or I just needed to make it easier on myself. So I would make all the bouquets in my studio. I'd put them on a rolling cart, and I'd roll them out to the front of our barn where we have nice open light. And I would do my different setups, take them, then I'd go put them back in the cooler, and it was done. And so then when delivery morning came, I was ready to roll. I didn't have to worry about it. I already had an Instagram post. Right. Love it. Yeah. I'm like, this is what I'm delivering today. Exactly. So wow. subscriptions are going out, get people excited. So people literally would see that before it even came to their, their yeah. front door. Yeah. Brilliant. I love it. Yeah. Well, let's stay in touch on that because yeah. I do think that there is, um, we are a visual profession. Consumers respond to, they, nobody reads anymore, sadly. I mean, you're talking to an editor who can't believe she's saying you know, When that. you're like writing captions for things, yes. you're like, no one's going to read this. But I still can't help but write a I love it when I have from when I have my editors at Better Homes and Gardens used to always in every contract it would say fifty word hard working hard working fifty word captions for every photo and it's like hard working I yeah. I know I'm working hard. I don't exactly know what they mean, but yeah. I think that we're almost to the, the hashtag bullet point stage now. Yeah. But yeah. but the photo is got got the power to really sell those flowers and capture people's imagination. Yeah, so. and the photography can tell the story of your business and yeah. your farm, not just the product, but the story, you know. Of place. What is, yeah, what does your farm look like? You know, what what is sunrise like? Show me, like, your zinnia patch, like, field rose. Um, show me yourself. Like, I love it. it's a storytelling medium, and I think it can be used really powerfully. And I'm not an advocate of... Like hiding everything away and making it all pretty and shiny, but 
I still think that you can always make a better photo in every scenario once yeah. you understand how to look at light and how to look at your subject matter and know you, you can't the thing with photography is people will see something interesting and they want to make an interesting photo of that and they say how do I make an interesting photo of that and I'm like that's not the best thing to pick right now right you have to pick something else or pick something in different light or you come back at a different time right don't try to replicate that yeah but use your own environment your own crops your own light yeah. to make something that has that like, same don't mood it. and that feeling mm-hmm. yeah how can people learn more i know i just said something about signing up for your newsletter because you, you it's not like you're giving out photo tips in your newsletter no but but in the in eventually when you are ready to launch a class that's how people will find out about it right? yeah okay. yeah um you could email me um i would say email me or go on instagram and dm me yes yeah. I'll put the contact information. Yeah. In and ofloraFarms at gmail.com. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not trying to set you up for lots of questions. I don't oh, know. I think it would be fun to do it. And I do have a, a hidden Instagram that's ofloraphotos, but it's, I haven't been active on it, but that I will be where, yeah, that will be where I start posting tips and promoting the workshop okay. as I get it going. Yes. But I've definitely learned you can't farm full time and do and do a uh, full-time photography course. business. No, <laughs> no, you can't. But although I try, mm, I mm. definitely try. Well, will you share a few photos of, of some of your favorite flower photos that I could put in the show notes? Oh, for sure. Okay, yeah. that that's a teaser right there. I mean, I feel like just listening to you talk about your discipline of shooting everything and how you mix it up on Instagram. Those are two takeaway tips for everyone who's listening today. Um, this has been so much fun, and I'm so glad I got Thanks to see you. Thanks for coming down. Oh, my, my I mean, pleasure. I know you didn't come down just to see me, but you I, came, I, came down for a major track and field event. Yes, but I, I said to my <laughs> husband, a great I'm, bonus. I'm not coming to Eugene without seeing people whose farms I want to visit. So yeah. it worked out great. Yeah, you've been working away. Oh, thank you so much. While it's your been... husband's having fun. <laughs> no, I'm going tonight. I'm yeah. going tonight. I'll probably see some world record records being broken but um it's it's just uh this is such a beautiful community and there's so many talented as you said farmers and florists that Mm -hmm. um it's you know it's a beautiful place to be and i love it's not that far from seattle so we're in the same region um and i i'm just glad that i got to see your delphiniums which i'm going to go home with a few so yeah thanks so much for joining me today. Check out our show notes at slowflowerspodcast.com for episode 569 to see some of Krista's beautiful photography and for a link to sign up for her newsletter so you'll be among the first to learn about her upcoming flower photography workshop. We'll also share the replay video there for you to watch again and you can find links to all of Krista's social places. Our next sponsor thanks goes to Red Twig Farms based in Johnstown, Ohio. Red Twig Farms is a family-owned farm specializing in peonies, daffodils, tulips, and branches, a popular peony bouquet by mail program, and their Spread the Hope campaign where customers purchase 10 tulip stems for essential workers and others in their community. Learn more at redtwigfarms.com. And thank you to the Seattle Wholesale Growers Market, a farmer-owned cooperative 
committed to providing the very best the Pacific Northwest has to offer in cut flowers, foliage, and plants. The Growers Market's mission is to foster a vibrant marketplace that sustains local flower farms and provides top quality products and services to the local floral industry. Visit them at seattlewholesalegrowersmarket.com. Thanks so much for joining us today. The Slow Flowers Podcast is a member-supported endeavor downloaded more than 872,000 times by listeners like you. Thank you for listening, commenting, and sharing. It means so much. As our movement gains more supporters and more passionate participants who believe in the importance of our domestic cut flower industry, the momentum is contagious. I know you feel it too. If you're new to our weekly show, and our long-running podcast, check out all of our resources at slowflowerssociety.com. Consider making a donation to sustain Slow Flowers' ongoing advocacy, education, and outreach activities. You can find the donate button at slowflowerspodcast.com. I'm Deborah Prinzing, host and producer of the Slow Flowers Show and the Slow Flowers Podcast. The Slow Flowers Podcast is engineered and edited by Andrew Brenlin. The content and opinions expressed here are either mine alone or those of my guests alone independent of any podcast sponsor or other person, company, or organization. Next week, you're invited to join me in putting more slow flowers on the table, one stem, one base at a time. I'll see you then.